Over the past several weeks of our Storyteller Sermon Series, we have explored all different kinds of stories. We've looked at tales of heroes and villains and how they might be us. We've looked at stories and myths of creation and how storytelling itself is an act of creation. Stories of love in all of their varieties chilling campfire tales and urban legends that articulate our deepest fears and anxieties. And today, we look at stories of the future and what they might tell us about this world in the here and now. So to that end, we looked to the book of Revelation. Not a common favorite in this congregation, I know. It's, it's a uh, bizarre and inscrutable and dark and weird book, Um, but it's a work of biblical prophecy that tells us more about the time it was written than it does about the time to come. Some believe that its frightful words are yet to be fulfilled, that the monstrous entities it depicts correlate with modern nations or with political figures, many of whom over the years have earned the dubious distinction of being the Antichrist described in its pages. Now, in actual fact, Revelation is all about first century Palestine, its cruel Roman overlords, and its hope for a better tomorrow. And today, you'll be pleased to hear that we're going to skip over all the gruesome stuff, the the ten-headed dragons and the armies of locust monsters, and go right for the happy ending. And maybe ask yourselves as you listen, if you can still believe in a happy ending to our story. reading from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. He will be their They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting and holy God, may the words of my mouth The meditations of all of our hearts serve to glorify you and you alone. And may they always be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have always wanted to be a pizza delivery man. I had an opportunity to get a 
taste of that life last summer when I spent a few weeks driving for Uber in my spare time, just for fun. I enrolled in the Uber Eats program, which employs drivers to pick up food at local restaurants and deliver it to people who are, you know, usually too lazy to go and get it themselves. <laughs> I can say that because I wasn't just an Uber Eats driver. I'm also a client. <laughs> I brought McDonald's to folks at work, lunch to people's homes. I even delivered a bucket of fried chicken to this paranoid guy in a motel who peered through a crack in the door and told me to leave it in the hallway like it was some kind of dead drop or something. I never did get to deliver a pizza though, which was disappointing. Now you're probably wondering why I ever wanted to be a pizza delivery driver, which is statistically one of the most dangerous jobs in the world and pays next to nothing. Well, the inspiration, uh, as many things uh, do, came from a story. Uh, came from a book that I read back in high school, Neil Stevenson's cyberpunk novel, Snow Crash. <laughs> now, the first chapter of the book introduces us to the protagonist, whose name is actually Hero Protagonist. He's an out-of-work software programmer in near-future California who does a brief stint delivering pizza. Now, Hero uh, really does this in great style. He, he drives a fast black car, wears a bulletproof carbon fiber suit, and carries two samurai swords in the trunk. He's even given himself a cool nickname, the Deliverator. Now that might seem melodramatic, but the Deliverator works for Cosa Nostra, a mafia-owned pizza franchise in the San Fernando Valley. The Cosa Nostra promise is to deliver every pie in 30 minutes or less, a standard that every driver either lives up to or dies trying. Every pizza box is equipped with an LED screen and a timer that counts down from 30 minutes. It's not a bomb, as you may suppose, uh, but should the driver fail, the customer is entitled to a personal apology from Cosa Nostra's CEO and mascot, Uncle Enzo. Uncle Enzo has not put in 50 years serving his family and his country, the author writes, so that at the age when most men are playing golf and coddling their granddaughters, he can get out of the bathtub dripping wet and lie down and kiss the feet of some 16-year-old skate punk whose pepperoni was 31 minutes in the coming. Oh, God. It makes the deliverator breathe a little shallower just to think of the idea. As you can imagine in this vision of the future where gangs have gone corporate and the mafia has its own pizza franchise, there's little in the way of economic competition. Competition goes against the mafia ethic, Stevenson writes in the first chapter of Snow Crash. You don't work harder because you're competing against some identical operation down the street. You work harder because everything is on the line. Your name, your honor, your family, your life. Those burger flippers might have a little better life expectancy, but what kind of life is it anyway, you have to ask yourself. The Deliverator is proud to wear the uniform, proud to drive the car, proud to march up the front walks of innumerable suburban homes, a grim vision in ninja black, a pizza on his shoulders, red lights blazing proud numbers into the night. 
Sometimes life imitates art, and that's why a part of me has always wanted to be the deliverator. Alas, I've had to settle for being the sermonator instead. <laughs> People have always speculated about the future. It's, it's human nature to wonder what tomorrow will bring. And speculative fiction, which sounds a lot better and more respectable than science fiction, so I'm going to use that phrase instead. Speculative fiction is an attempt at bending one's imagination towards the future and wondering what it might be like. And it's my observation and opinion that uh, since the late 1970s, speculative fiction has been predominantly dark and dystopian and hopeless. And that's because art often imitates life, too. Hopeful people tell hopeful stories, and they produce hopeful visions of the future. So back in the late 19th century, Jules Verne captivated audiences with grand adventures made possible by advances in technology. Steam engines, airships, submarines, even rudimentary space travel were all viable possibilities that one could uh, imagine or maybe even pursue. There was a cultural enthusiasm for technology, the kind that we saw at the, the World's Fair, that predated the Industrial Revolution when its dangers began to be feared and known. In the 1960s, just before the sheen of post-war confidence had begun to wear off, we had Star Trek. Now, Star Trek is the epitome of optimism. In this fictional universe, the Earth is united under a single banner of peace and prosperity. That unity is further extended into a united federation of planets where the majority of known space and its many civilizations all live together in harmony. It is, as Captain James T. Kirk, captain of the Starship Enterprise, once said, a dream that became a reality and spread throughout the stars. It was a dream where everyone could live long and prosper. But it wasn't long before that dream was displaced by a nightmare. The oil shortages of the 1970s gave rise to new kinds of stories, specifically a trilogy of Mad Max films, an influential vision of the post-apocalyptic future where motorcycle gangs in leather pants terrorized the highways, ready to wage war for a tank of juice. These stories chronicle the journeys of Max Rakotansky, an ex-cop who lost his wife and son, wandering the wasteland in his 1973 V8 Ford Falcon while scavenging for gasoline and fighting his nemesis, Tina Turner. I tell you, they just do not make movies like this anymore. Max was a bit of a celebrity, too. He was played by a young Mel Gibson, back when people still liked Mel Gibson. <laughs> now, in the interest of full disclosure, I've got to tell you, I'm actually planning to dress up as Max, Max Rakotansky for Halloween this year. Um, and I'm actually wearing the costume right now. <laughs> Do you want to see it? Sure. Yeah? All right, well, you can say what you like about me as a preacher, 
You know, you can say that I uh, am a buffoon, an idiot. You can say that I'm a fool. You can say that I don't take my job seriously. But let it never be said. Let it never be said that I am above resorting to cheap gimmicks <laughs> to keep things interesting up here in the pulpit. I mean, who needs Mel Gibson, am I right? I'm going to keep this on, so you just better get used to it. Now. Mad Max ushered in a new wave of dystopian science fiction. Since then, we've been hearing stories about how awful the world's going to be in 100 years. Our storytellers are fixated on post-nuclear wastelands, corrupt governments, environmental disaster, technology run amok, and corporations who exploit the populace with cheap tech while hoarding the world's wealth and its resources. But that's just one kind of story. That's one vision of the future. This is one vision of the future. But does it have to be that way? Is that where humanity is really headed? Is that where we already are? Now, my son is only seven years old, um, but he's already got his whole future planned out. He's, uh, he's going to work for Lego, you know, designing sets and builds for kids like himself. He's going to marry the girl that he plays with at recess every day. They're going to have a couple of really well-behaved children. <laughs> now, there's only one downside to his plan. I'm going to miss my wife and kids, he tells me, because I'll still be living with you. <laughs> now... Visions of the future always tell us something about the here and now, and the, the minds that envision these scenarios are shaped by their environment. So in the case of my son, our house is the only reality, the only home that he knows. It's the only one he can imagine. He can't really picture living anywhere else. And similarly, speculative fiction is always born in a very specific, a very particular zeitgeist. It takes the current reality that we live in today to its extreme conclusions, imagining what will happen if the trajectory doesn't change. Now, this is also true of biblical prophecy. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic vision supposedly revealed to John of Patmos in the first century. Now, John was a historical contemporary of Jesus, and uh, they were both shaped by the same cultural and political realities. And the reality, friends, was miserable. It was a hard time to be alive. Jews and their communities had been assimilated into the Roman Empire, which stood for all the things um, that the Jews were against. Stood for um, violence and warfare and peace through war and um, military strength and had none of the virtues of ancient Judaism. 
There was terrible infighting amongst their own ranks as the Philistines, I'm sorry, Philistines, Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, argued with each other and clashed over religious beliefs and political loyalties. Ordinary people were taxed and jailed and crucified, and Rome, Rome was almighty. There was no stopping it. There was no end in sight to its terrible regime. Now, this is the world that John was writing in. It's the world that Jesus lived in. Apocalyptic literature, like the kind we find in the book of Revelation, is always born in times of turmoil and suffering. There's a um, a school of thought in biblical studies that involves something called relative deprivation theory. What that means is that when a culture or a society is robbed of something that it holds precious and dear, maybe their freedom or their prosperity or their land, whatever it is, their current reality becomes intolerable. They, They keep looking back to the way things were. And they can't stand to exist in the time that they're in relative to the past. And this climate is ripe for a particular kind of storytelling. The kind that is dark and dystopian, but also sometimes hopeful, as Revelation ultimately is, if it can envision a way through the suffering. Again, I'm in, uh, reminded of the, the oil shortages in the 70s and the way that Mad Max articulated that anxiety and that hope. Now, all of these movies in the 70s and 80s, uh, these, these dystopian sci-fi movies, they all had this, this really dramatic monologue at the beginning, right, that sort of describes the way in which the world fell you know, with the scrolling text and all that stuff. It was a, an art unto itself. I want to do a little dramatic reading from the second Mad Max film. My life dims. The vision fades. Only those mobile enough to scavenge, brutal enough to pillage, could survive. And in this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed. Men like Max. In the roar of an engine, he lost everything and became a shell of a man. A burnt-out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons of his past. A man who wandered out into the wasteland. And it was here, in this blighted place, that he learned to live again. Thank you. (laughs) Now, aside from the engines and gasoline, actually sounds a lot like Jesus, he wandered the deserts looking for redemption. He was battered and smashed, and he learned to live again. He believed in a better world, God's vision of the world, a holy city, a new Jerusalem. But it's hard some days for us to believe that the world could ever be any better than it is right now. It's hard to believe that we can ever overcome injustice or arrest climate change or that we can change the trajectory that we're on at all. 
But as grim as the book of Revelation may be, it is supposed to be hopeful because it imagined a future in which Rome would be destroyed, a new Jerusalem would take its place, and against all hope, people would learn to live again. Now, Neil Stevenson, the guy who wrote about the Deliverator, he, he recently founded a nonprofit initiative for young writers. Painfully aware of the dystopian nature of most speculative fiction and the ways in which he himself has contributed to it, Stevenson established this initiative to encourage folks to craft more optimistic stories about the future. He argues that uh, a lot of people who built the technology that we rely on today, you know, automobiles, modern medicine, the internet, these, these engineers and scientists and dreamers were all inspired in their youth by the stories of yesteryear, by more optimistic kinds of fiction. And he fears that if we're only telling hopeless stories, only imagining dying worlds, then that's exactly what we're going to get, and that we are failing to inspire the next generation to get anything done. So in tandem with his efforts, uh, a new genre of fiction is finally beginning to emerge. They call it solar punk. It's a derivative of cyberpunk, a genre of science fiction in the 80s that gave rise uh, to the internet, or predicted the rise of the internet. Now there are other derivatives too. There's, you know, there's uh, steampunk and biopunk and diesel punk and even the completely unnecessary now punk, which are really just stories that take place now. Um, but solar punk stories are different from their counterparts because they are unapologetically hopeful. They imagine futures not filled with toxic mega cities or, or barren wastelands, but, but rather filled with wind farms and replanted forests, cities fueled by sustainable energy where skyscrapers are adorned with lush gardens where cultural diversity is cherished, where wealth is distributed more evenly across the social strata, where conflict arises not from war or from broken systems or injustice, but just from everyday problems that we all deal with, the kind that we'll always have to deal with. And isn't that enough, after all, to worry about? I read a, a short story recently called Last Day. Um, it wasn't about the last day of Earth or anything like that. It was about a young man named Carlisle who works on a trash disposal rig in the Pacific Ocean. He's a little anxious because he's hoping to get a promotion from his boss, but that's the only conflict in the story. It's really just a brief tour of his working day, which is a far cry from the stress of delivering pizza for the mafia. He started his shift in the same way every day, the author writes, thermos of tea in the cup holder next to him. He ran a quick systems check to make sure everything was primed. Once that was done, he leaned forward and stared out at the Pacific, taking in the sparkling waters, the low clouds on the horizon, and the bright blue sky. Even on days when it was raining buckets out there, the sight was no less beautiful. He still couldn't believe that there used to be a mound of garbage churning at the ocean's heart. 
Can you hear the difference in that story? Can you hear the hope? More importantly, can you believe it? That's an important question because the future is built on the stories we tell. And our hope is built on the stories that we believe are true. Amen.